Welcome to True Nature Radio. I'm Laurie Regan. And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. Very happy to introduce our guest today, who is Dr. Linda L. Barnes, who is an associate professor in the Division of Religion and Theological Studies and also Family Medicine at Boston University. She also is the director of the Masters of Medical Anthropology and Cross-Cultural Practice program at Boston University School of Medicine. In addition, she teaches on the faculty of the Tri-State College of Acupuncture in Manhattan. She's the author of numerous articles and also, more recently, um, publications including Teaching Religion and Healing, Religion and Healing in America, and also um, Needles, Herbs, Gods, and Ghosts, China, Healing, and, and the West to 1848. In addition, she's working on a new publication, Chinese Medicine and Healing, and Illustrated History. Welcome, Linda. Thank you. Glad to be here. Um, here we are in the West, um, teaching and, and uh, practicing Chinese medicine, and you've become an expert in how Chinese medicine, the history of it, how it actually came to the West. Linda, how did you get interested in this topic? Uh, back in the 1970s, I had a friend who was quite interested in Chinese poetry and actually in the I Ching. At that time, as, as some people may remember, that had become rather popular among some of us interested in beginning to be aware of, of traditions from outside of the United States. And that interest uh, led me in a kind of winding journey back to graduate school um, at Harvard, where I st ended up studying comparative religious studies. And uh, at that time, the one of the elders in medical anthropology, Arthur Kleinman, had come to Harvard. And so after being exposed to various teachers who were interested in the interface between various religious traditions and ideas about suffering and healing uh, and related uh, therapeutic traditions, all of that led me to be curious as to how Chinese practices were coming into American culture, um, not just in terms of acupuncture, but a fuller spectrum that extended to include things like divination practices, temple practices, and so on. And um, because I had discovered along the way over the years that I didn't uproot too well and, you know, I got terribly homesick living abroad, uh, I decided I would start out by looking at how these practices were coming into my own region in the Boston area. And uh, it sort of grew from there. Linda, in um, the field of acupuncture, at least, the key moment that changed everything was in the early 1970s when Richard Nixon and his uh, entourage went to China after many decades of being closed and uh, one of the um, uh, accompanying journalists I believe uh, had appendicitis and was uh, operated on under acupuncture anesthesia and then reported about that and that led to the opening uh, of the first schools of Chinese medicine in the United States. So many of the people in my profession, acupuncture and Chinese medicine, believe that that was sort of the beginning 
of the formation of Chinese medicine as a profession in the West. And your work has been especially to go a little bit farther back and document uh, how much longer the process of assimilation uh, of this medicine has been going on. Um, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah. Well, if we, if we look at it as a profession that became wider spread, the dating of that process to the early 1970s is not wrong. But if we look at when acupuncture entered, uh, I would have to say North America, I would put it back uh, closer to the 1630s. Um, particularly through the West Coast as the Spanish colonizers were leaving Spain, going through the Philippines, encountering Chinese uh, communities in the Philippines, and quite often bringing workers and sailors and craftspeople and so on uh, into Mexico and into the West Coast of what would much later become the United States. Um, there are reports in the 1630s in Mexico City of the Spanish barbers complaining that the Chinese barbers were charging less for their services. And as a result, and they went to the equivalent of town hall at the time to register this complaint, subsequent to which the Chinese barbers were forced to move further out. And the only reason that matters is that Chinese barbers at the time, in addition to practicing sort of therapeutic massage, also practiced minor surgery and bloodletting, which overlapped with street versions of acupuncture. So although the complaint was not about their practicing acupuncture, I think it's quite reasonable to assume that acupuncture was, in a, in a more basic way, was part of what they were doing. And the other piece is that every time uh, Chinese immigrants came into any place, they brought medicine with them, hmm. uh, which was practiced among their own communities and groups, but all the way throughout, there is evidence showing that they extended those practices to people around them if those people were receptive, interested, or seeking help. So in that regard, the history of acupuncture in particular in Chinese medicine more generally, I think, could be said to be over 400 years in North America. Wow. So was that, are you saying, Linda, that it's really been a continuous practice over those 400 years? Exactly. Continuous presence. Hmm. Mm -hmm. Yes. So what do you think are some of the least known aspects of this history then? It seems like people are familiar only with the most recent decades. What are some mm -hmm. of the highlights of, of really what happened and what were the critical developments over the, those 400 years? Well, um, at the entry of Chinese immigrants represented one sort of current bringing these practices into North America. A second one, however, was the influence of Jesuit missionaries, especially in Europe. And some of the missionaries, 
as well as some uh, some doctors who went to, to southern China, but more it was the missionaries, wrote detailed accounts of Chinese herbal medicine, Chinese medical theory, which they didn't tend to take very seriously, but that didn't stop them from writing pretty accurate reports and descriptions of acupuncture practice, which was also reported on by some German surgeons who had gone along with uh, colonizing trade missions. And all of those reports came into France and then into England and Scotland in the 1700s, the 1800s, leading uh, doctors in these settings, especially surgeons, to develop a very strong interest in both acupuncture and the use of moxibustion or therapeutic heat. So for a period of several decades, there was extensive reporting on these different practices. The Chinese herbs were reported on more in journals of pharmacy, pharmacology, or what we would now characterize as internal medicine. And surgery tended to be more in the the surgical journals, but also in journals like The Lancet. And the reason that matters for for the United States is that there was a lot more traffic of information, even in the early uh, late 1700s, early 1800s, than we often think. So let's say a French surgeon published an article about his experiments with acupuncture. Within weeks, that article would have been translated and reprinted or summarized in a British or Scottish medical journal. And within, say, a month to some weeks beyond that, it would reappear in an American medical journal. And so, especially in the 1820s and the following not-quite-decade, American surgeons were reading about acupuncture in their own journals, and these reports went as far west as what was then called the Western Medical Journal, and that referred to Cincinnati. So it sounds like there was a lot more um, acceptance and openness in those days about the what was being discovered in, in China than there is perhaps um, in more modern times. Is that your sense? There was, yes. Well, there was acceptance. What was also similar, however, was that uh, Chinese understandings of the body were the piece that was not understood and often not accepted. And that's been an ongoing challenge. You know, when you try to translate one therapeutic culture into the worldview of another, that's the place where things, as you know, can get kind of stuck. So to the extent that acupuncture practice rests in a theory of the, you know, the flow of qi, the flow of vital force, um, and the Western approach generally focuses on an anatomically understood body. Those two have found difficulty understanding each other. What that has meant is that in European and American practice, uh, until much more recently, there's been a tendency to borrow the the techniques, the technology but not the underlying theory. And that's meant that you've had the application of, of acupuncture, say, to in a lot of it in relation to pain, but to the site of pain. Um, 
and not based on, say, a theory of meridians. So that's been the the sort of we- a, a, a thread in the Western adoption of acupuncture through a physician com- a, a Western physician community, and alongside of that, you had Chinese herbalists and acupuncturists practicing in their own communities to some extent, but during the second half of the 19th century, there's absolutely documented evidence that they were treating non-Chinese patients really around the country. Yeah, and a good example um, is uh, right here in Oregon in Mm -hmm. the desert region, and I recently went to the small city of John Day, uh, partially inspired by your fieldwork and the wonderful photographs you took of your uh, research trip there, where a doctor in the late 1800s uh, uh, opened a shop there, so, so mm-hmm. to speak, in the middle of a thriving Chinatown where in, in this little uh, place that even now is a uh, very small. You had 2,000 Chinese people living there in fairly closed community in a mining community. Uh, but, and I find that um, today as well, is that the medicine knows no boundaries, namely when somebody is very ill and he cannot be helped by the regular medicine, then regular boundaries such as, I don't understand this medicine, Uh, I'm going to somebody who doesn't really speak English, maybe Uh, all of these concerns, they may fall to the wayside if he or Mm -hmm. she hears from the neighbor that um, this person really helped me. And there's uh, great evidence, I think, in the case of this doctor that people traveled from as far away as California by stagecoach to uh, or wrote letters to this doctor to have their ailments be looked at. I, uh, your photos spoke so uh, volumes to me, and I wonder whether you, for our listeners, could give them a visual of of this uh, place in the middle of the Oregon desert and the practice of Chinese medicine that this doctor uh, practiced there for many decades. Um, Yes, I I can, and would also preface it by saying that because this place is still uh, extant and the state has made it into a museum, um, we can see what was actually not atypical. There were similar places uh, throughout Northern California. I visited many of them. And so what you see in John Day, the the organization of the place was actually quite common. And so we're very lucky that that place still exists. Um, But it looks like, uh, to me anyway, uh, it's a two-story building with a sort of A-frame roof. Um, The second floor, they had plans to do various things with that never really materialized. So effectively, it's a a one-story building. But as you come in, the the walls are all sort of um, um, paneled with rough, darkened, I, I don't know quite what the wood is. And immediately on your right, there is a small area with about a, uh, a wooden 
uh, halfway up wall, and above that are metal bars. So it's a small, encased, half-open room that uh, was the pharmacy. So it's not big at all. I, I don't know if you remember the exact dimensions. I would say maybe it's by about 10 by 8 feet, thereabout at the most. Yes, that's what I seem to remember, yeah. Yeah, so you walk into that, which is really, it, it occupies the corner of the room, and you walk in, and there are old metal tins and smaller cardboard boxes, each of which contains herbs. So you don't see what you might find in uh, other pharmacies, which would be a collection of a lot of wooden drawers, each of them containing herbs. You don't see many glass jars. And that's all along pretty much one wall. And then if you turn around and are facing into the room, looking through the up and down uh, bars, which I suspect were just to sort of close off the space a bit, there's a pharmacy counter, which is, again, like a wooden bench. And there are um, his tools and some... uh, Uh, herbal products right there on the bench and this is because as an older person in I think it may have been in the 1940s or very early 50s um, this Dr. Ng Hay fell and broke his hip. He was an older person by then and his sight was largely gone and so he was taken west to Portland with the expectation of coming back except he never recovered sufficiently to come back. So more or less he locked the door, left, and everything was in place as he had left it, which is why all of these things are still just out. So I my, I remember in particular there was a sort of petrified deer fetus there that somebody had brought him, knowing that that might be an ingredient in something, along with all of the plant medications that he had, So that's just one corner, and if you continued, if you went back out into the main room, directly ahead of you would be a small general store. Because a lot of these places were sort of the central business and social uh, gathering place for the Chinese immigrant community. So they carried everything from some Western medicines, not a lot, to hair dye, to uh, my memories, there were some pipes on the table. Um, hanging on the walls, a small sort of altar, because it was also the local temple space where people would come at particular times of the year, or if they wanted to make prayers or petitions. Um, if you looked to the left, there is his bedroom with sort of brightly flowered wallpaper. Um, it was said that under the bed he had a suitcase full of uncashed checks, and I've never been quite sure whether he thought that was equivalent to putting them in the bank, um, with the idea that if he needed money he could cash them. Uh, And then in the other corner of the room there's a, a sort of storeroom where you could see that they had imported herbs from San Francisco that would have come in from China. So there was a uh, commerce of... uh, of herbal medicines showing that China was shipping medicine into the United States and not just to John Day, um, but the fact that that was so remote tells us 
that herbal medicine was circulating around the United States and being given to non-Chinese patients as was documented in the correspondence that you were talking about, you know, telegrams. I'm sending a check for, you know, I'll send a check for $5. Can you refill my prescription and boil it up and something? Mm-hmm. Um, and then beyond, sort of far to the left, there's a room with a couple of bunk beds so that if people were traveling through and needed a place to stay, they could. So it also doubled as the sort of local hotel, especially given that Chinese workers were not likely to be received in the hotels run by non-Chinese. And likewise, there was a kitchen where they could get a meal. So it was the local restaurant. So it doubled for all kinds of uh, services. And and that was made all the more important because the surrounding non-Chinese community was not always friendly. And if some of the local workers got liquored up and decided to go riding through the Chinese community, they might shoot up the front door. um, And you probably were shown the evidence of bullet indentations outside the door. So it was also a little bit of the local fort in cases where people were literally under fire. Yeah, Linda, my memory of being there is that this building is sat kind of at the interface of what used to be the Chinese section of the town mm-hmm. that most Chinese people were expected to stay in. Is that right? And then it, it, there was it was sort of an interface between the Chinese community and the non-Chinese community served by this Chinese physician who clearly had um, some really strong ability to heal people and therefore drew patients from all different populations. Is that correct? And if so, is that also typical of how Chinese medicine was practiced throughout at least the Western United States? Uh, Yes, I think it was. Uh, What I always find interesting is that his business partner – also ended up being the first automobile dealer in town. Mm-hmm. Um, having gone to Portland and been introduced to the automobile, so he decided to start selling them out in John Day and was quite successful at doing that. So this particular pair managed to interact very, very effectively with the non-Chinese community, but that was not unusual. And insofar as there was tremendous bigotry directed at Chinese workers. That didn't necessarily extend to someone like a doctor. So they, on the one hand, were limited as to where they could live and practice. On the other hand, they weren't necessarily the ones lynched or driven out of town, although there was an episode in San Francisco um, where there was an attack on the community and... and, uh, one record of a Chinese doctor being attacked and his hands being cut off. Mm. So if they were to be Chinese was to face a certain level of, of very uh, serious danger and risk. But relatively speaking, if they were viewed as doctors, they were less subject to that kind of risk and might become very highly regarded and esteemed, as was the case with a doctor practicing in the late uh, 1800s in uh, Atlanta, Georgia. And he kept, by the early 20th century, because these folks posed some real competition to other physicians, non-Chinese physicians, they started getting arrested for practicing medicine without a license and facing all kinds of legal charges 
to the point where the more successful practitioners <clears throat> started having lawyers on retainer to get them out of jail. Um, but there's a wonderful series of newspaper articles in the Atlanta press at that time. Apparently, the charges against this doctor ended up getting dropped, and there was a record of one of the jurors having been so impressed by him that he declared he was going to go see him following the trial. Uh, so these efforts to suppress them didn't work, and what many of them did as a survival strategy was they started uh, doing their diagnosis and prescription writing for free, and then they sold herbs. And so they could, by separating what was classified as the medical practice from the sale of herbs uh, and so on, that kept them free of, more or less, of the uh, legal difficulties. And that continued well into the 20th century. And of course, in the meantime, Chinese medicine as a profession in the United States has uh, evolved greatly, and we now have not only master's programs, uh, uh, some of which uh, you are teaching in and we are teaching in, uh, but also more recently doctoral programs, and we have about 30,000 licensed practitioners now in yeah. the field of acupuncture and Chinese medicine, most of whom are Westerners who don't speak Chinese anymore. So the field has evolved greatly, and some of that was uh, Nixon's visit to China that facilitated that growth and initial interest. But some of it also, and I think you have written about that as well, was the influence of the so-called New Age movement that was uh, made us look more toward the East and uh, sometimes... Uh, not in a very differentiated fashion, then import things like yoga and uh, qigong and also Chinese medicine. So, Linda, from your very unique bird's eye perspective as a medical anthropologist, how do you view the uh, pluralistic nature uh, of this uh, sometimes very selective absorption of um, Eastern knowledge and then integrating it in into a Western cultural context. Mm -hmm. Well, part of what in some ways was quite artificial during the 1970s and into the 80s, as I'm sure you, you'll, you'll both remember, was the idea that Chinese medicine in China had been unified. Yes. Rather than being... Uh, rather than consisting of all kinds of practices, of all kinds of practitioners, um, you know, there was acupuncture, there was herbal medicine, there were the movement practices, there were divination practices, and so on and so on, um, therapeutic massage and, and whatnot. So in China, the approach to healing was highly pluralistic from the beginning. You had regional variations, you had scholarly versions, you had more uh, peasant versions, and all of that conglomerate of practices really constituted Chinese medicine. When uh, in the 1960s, um, people in the United States began to be aware through reports of the Cultural Revolution and Barefoot Doctors 
of acupuncture as a kind of people's medicine. That drove uh, the idea that this was Chinese medicine. And while people in this country were sort of aware of herbal practice, what had really, I, I would suggest, had captured their imaginations was acupuncture as filtered through the lens of the PRC. Um, and so, so I think the, the movement outward starting especially in the 1980s where people began to, you know, they brought in teachers from different parts of the world. They began to turn to some of the practitioners here in this country as teachers um, the different waves of immigration from the People's Republic of China following the revolution, following the um, events at Tiananmen Square in more recent decades, and so on, has meant that there have been waves of influence coming out of mainland China and the diaspora, meeting with the Chinese communities here, meeting with different groups who came at the practices out of different kinds of interest here in the United States. Sometimes it was somebody having gone as a patient and having such a powerful experience that they decided to train as a practitioner. <clears throat> so they weren't necessarily coming out of a scholarly background, um, nor had they grown up with the practices and there was some of the new age kind of, a. Uh, adoption appropriation very more much more piecemeal but over time at the sort of concurrent with all of that you've had people become aware that practice was not unified in mainland china either and they've gone back to older texts and as is the case you know with you both and your program there's been a return to the interest in more classical forms predating the influence of the People's Republic of China. So, in a way, there's sort of something for everyone. Linda, that's a great summary. And thanks for taking us through 400 years of history of Chinese medicine in the United States. It's all we have time for today, but thank you so much for joining us. It's a wonderful pleasure, and I'm glad to speak with you. Thank you. That's all we have time for today. Join us next week for another episode of True Nature Radio. I'm Laurie Regan. And I'm Heiner Fruhoff. <laughs>